Today we wanted to discuss an extremely important topic, a discussion that is long overdue. Many of you would have seen images on your social media accounts, articles, various informational resources online, and sometimes in the news, highlighting and depicting the systemic and institutional racism that is prevalent in the world. For this episode, we have decided to focus specifically on the United States to give you, our audience, and particularly those around the world, greater insight into what systemic and institutional racism encompasses. Part of being an active ally includes working towards achieving justice in the ways you can, while also learning about the history of racism and how it is embedded in the institutions we interact with and the world we live in. A component of this learning means that we have to critically think about why the histories we have been taught in Western institutions often tend to brush over, silence, or villainize Black people, Black lives, and Indigenous populations. Why so many of our institutions have failed to highlight the diversity of experiences, the lives, stories, and successes of Black individuals. Why our education system has essentially refrained from giving us an adequate understanding of what it means to exist and interact with institutions that have had violent, colonial, and racist beginnings, and what this means for our systems overall. In light of the injustices occurring and that have been occurring since the founding of the United States and the incessant killings of civilians at the hands of the police, it is crucial for us to discuss and unpack the prison industrial complex as a large component of the systemic racism that exists in the United States. In this episode, we will focus on giving you the history of the continuous injustices faced by Black individuals at the hands of the police. From the ending of slavery, to the Jim Crow laws and segregation, to the war on drugs and today's for-profit prisons, and the disproportionate number of Black people in them. There's a lot to cover in this episode, and we will try to give you as concise and clear of an explanation as possible. But please remember that the learning really does not stop here and should not stop here. We highly encourage you to please check out the resources that we have listed on our website. We include books as well as documentaries and social media accounts you can follow for more information. Okay, so where do we start? I think before we begin, one thing that's really important to define and understand is what systemic and institutional racism actually is. When we talk about racism, a lot of people tend to picture it as individual racism. This is racism that is experienced at the individual level. It is often thought of as being direct, so it's when you hear someone using a racial slur. Or it's indirect, it's the microaggression that as a black person you encounter every day. When we talk about systemic racism, um, and this is often what people are trying to address when, when you hear calls for dismantling the system or defunding this police. It essentially targets the system as a whole. Um, and that's why a lot of these arguments, so when you hear people say, you know, not all cops are bad, not all of the police are bad, um, or arguments against defunding the police, these arguments really fail to take into account the fact that it's not about the individual person, it's about the system. And so whether a person in that system is good or bad doesn't matter because ultimately that the system itself is racist at its inception and that upholds white supremacy at the expense of black lives. Right, so I guess when we discuss systemic racism, we're really talking about an entire system that works together to actively disadvantage people of color. 
and it's complicit and conducive to the oppression of those individuals. Institutions make up these systems and help to supplant this racism. Systemic racism includes things such as mass incarceration, which we'll talk about today. And so you'll see how racism is included in these systems of oppression. It also includes things like the education system and the healthcare system and many of these other societal systems. So I think we really need to talk about, you know, the modern prison industrial complex. And before we start talking about that, first and foremost, we have to really talk about its inception. And when we talk about the modern prison industrial complex, we really have to start at the point at which slavery was quote-unquote abolished. The reason I am apprehensive about claiming that slavery was abolished is because in all actuality, if you really think about it, it wasn't. In the US, slavery was essentially transformed. Police were originally conceived of in the South as a means of capturing runaway slaves. And so this wasn't an institution created to protect people. In fact, they were just slave patrols. The significance of this is profound. Because today when you think about the police, the rhetoric surrounding the institution was that it was created to protect and serve. This is false because historically the police were never really meant to protect black people. And in fact, you could say that the police were meant to target the black community. And we see remnants of that today with redlining, marginalized communities in particular are often the most over-policed. Muna, can you explain what redlining is? The term itself was coined by sociologist James McKnight in the 1960s. Quite literally, mortgage lenders would draw a red line around certain racialized neighborhoods. They would not invest in these neighborhoods. And if you were a black person, chances are you had a significantly harder time acquiring loans, even if you were middle or upper class, whereas loans were given to lower income white communities. The government of the United States in the 1930s actually ended up redlining racialized neighborhoods and deemed them risky. So these homes ended up being of a lesser value. Really, even though it's supposedly illegal in this day and age, you can still see the impact of redlining. On December 18, 1865, the U.S. Congress ratified the 13th Amendment, which supposedly abolished slavery. The Civil War lasted from 1865 to 77. And after this ended, you had what is known as the Reconstruction Period. And this was a short period in which Black people were allowed to prosper and they set up businesses and things like the Black Wall Street came into being. But that didn't last long. It didn't mean that the societal conditions or structures were changed. In fact, many of the southern states actually implemented Black codes. So these were laws that actually reverted the rights of former slaves. Black individuals in the U.S. were essentially relegated to second-class citizenship, and this wasn't just in the racist attitudes of people, but also supplanted by laws and legal mechanisms. So we have the 13th Amendment, and that supposedly abolished slavery. However, if you look at the language of the 13th Amendment, which I'll read to you now, you can see that that is actually not the case. Section 1 says, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Section 2 states, Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Essentially, if you are a convicted criminal, it's basically legal for you to be a slave laborer. 
Here, we essentially have an added incentive for people to be arrested, convicted, and to serve time. And you have the Constitution actually, quite frankly, stating that if you're a criminal, you can be a slave. So you have the convict lease system, which meant that as a black person, you could be arrested and leased out to work for free. Post-Civil War US exploited this immensely. And you had black convicts forced to work for short periods of time, regardless of their situation, and some people even dying on the field. W.E.B. Dubois said that the convict lease system had such a high profit potential that it actually encouraged many of these who had southern plantations to rely on convict labor. There was an economic incentive to keep filling prisons. I want to actually draw your attention to an issue that's very important as well in today's day and age. So prison labor still exists, and there are actually quite a few large corporations that still employ prison labor, which is essentially slave labor. I think it's really important for you, our audience, to know that, to do your research, and to find out which companies are in fact still doing this so that you can ensure your money isn't contributing to this terrible system. So the black codes that we mentioned earlier were the foundation of what ended up culminating in the Jim Crow laws. During Reconstruction, you had the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, and black people in the U.S. were terrorized. Jim Crow laws were about segregation and were essentially a system of apartheid in the U.S. In the 1880s, when you had more black people moving into the cities, the laws actually got stricter. Things such as interracial marriage were forbidden in the U.S., After World War I ended, the NAACP actually found that lynchings were increasing all over the country. You also had a period known as the Red Summer in 1919, where there were a minimum of 25 riots across the United States. The violence continued during the Great Depression with the harsh and hard conditions that people were living in. Lynchings actually increased in the United States. Even black veterans who returned home after World War II were subject to racist abuse that included the segregation system and lynchings. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act, quote unquote, ended segregation. But if you look back historically, from the time of redlining to the lack of investment in the communities of Black people, Black individuals in the United States still live in a very unequal, and some could argue, a segregated environment. Now we really have to talk about the war on drugs and mass incarceration. Currently, over 2 million people are incarcerated in the U.S. That is the highest population of prisoners in the entire world. What's really interesting about this is when you look at the relationship between the war on drugs and mass incarceration, you see that essentially incarceration for non-drug-related crimes has remained stable, while incarcerated for drug-related crimes has been increasing. This information was published in an NACLA report in 2001, so you can only imagine what the numbers are like now. In 2001, there were 792,000 black people in U.S. prisons. That is the same number of enslaved people in 1820. The war on drugs has also resulted in a gross abuse of police authority. The Fourth Amendment that is supposed to limit the power of authorities to search and arrest is grossly limited by it. Things such as bribing informants, using surveillance, entrapment, everything is used. Even property can be seized. 
This is then sold and the profits, lo and behold, go to the already large law enforcement budget. When the war on drugs was at its prime, a big shift occurred. Drug enforcement agencies started to make more money from seizing property than from their own police budgets. The war on drugs really gave the police the authority to use means and methods that severely undermined many constitutional freedoms. What's significant here is that we already know from what we've spoken about earlier that most of those targeted were minorities, black individuals specifically, their neighborhoods, communities were over-policed. Most people serving extensive prison sentences for minor drug offenses are black people. In 2015, over one in four black people were arrested for a drug-related violation. What this means is that if you are a drug offender, even if you haven't spent time in jail, you've lost the right to vote. Just think about what that means, how the system had racist beginnings, how over-policed neighborhoods resulted in more arrests, how black and brown communities are targeted, how black people face harsher sentences, how prison labor is continuously allowed and used for profit and exploitation, how most people in these prisons are black people, and how as a consequence of that, they have lost their right to vote. That's right. It's really a system that feeds itself. It's a continuous cycle. It's racism that is structural, and it's meant that black people never truly had the opportunity to build generational wealth like their white counterparts. We'd really be lying to ourselves if we said that there wasn't a specific intent to oppress behind the rhetoric of the war on drugs. In a 1994 interview, President Nixon's chief of domestic policy said that his campaign had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. In the 1980s, Reagan expanded the war on drugs campaign. His wife Nancy had the Just Say No campaign. And here we saw much harsher penalties for drugs. And in the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, minimum sentences were introduced. Black people were targeted and given longer prison sentences. So we've now gone over the history behind the establishment. I think we should talk about private for-profit prisons. Core Civic, Terrell Don Hutto, is a $1.8 billion private prison corporation. And at the time, it actually ran a cotton plantation. In the South, prisons were usually plantations. And you see there being an incentive to fill these prisons so that individuals had more slave labor. Torture was even used. Some prisons were given guns and whips so that they could torture the slaves who did not meet quotas. These prisons were fueled by the incentive to make more profit. In the 19th century, a newspaper called the Texas and Telegraph said, quote, and I'm quoting here, if a profit of several thousand dollars can be made on the labor of 20 slaves, why not a similar profit be made on the labor of 20 convicts? Post-Civil War, private prisons increased. The same reason used back then is being used these days to justify private prisons. The fact that prison populations are rising, and as we know from what we've spoken about, that there is a targeted and intentional reason for this. In the early 20th century, there were former slaveholders who were able to build massive empires. Prisoners were also allowed to be tortured. Not only is the reason for this profit system able to last, because essentially you had a huge section of the profits from these leases going to states, 
there is also a really huge profit incentive to keep this system and cycle going. In the early 20th century, states bought plantations and stopped leasing to private prisons because of the excessive profits these prisons were making. There's also an article in the Times by Shane Bauer, um, who actually went undercover in 2014 and investigated the company Core Civics. He also wrote a book called American Prison. So what Bauer did was he went undercover as a prison guard and what he found was horrifying. These are truly inhumane conditions. There was one prisoner who had lost both his legs to gangrene after not receiving medical care and begging for months to receive it. What's also very sad about this is that Core Civic didn't actually like sending prisoners to the hospital because then this would have to come out of the company's budget. You can read about this in the Times article, which we'll link on our website. Thank you so much for listening. We hope we helped shed some light on the violence of the prison industrial complex and the legacy of slavery as it has manifestly transformed into the oppressive, systemically racist system today in the United States. As we mentioned earlier, systemic racism encompasses so many factors. We encourage you to have a listen to our first episode where we touch upon some of the issues. And really, do check out the resources on our website. I'd like to acknowledge some of the sources we've used, sentencingproject.org, the ACLU website, time.com, New York Times, Angela Davis's books, Woman, Race, and Class, and Our Prisons Obsolete, and many of the other sources and resources we have linked on our website and will be included in the episode description. Thank you so much for listening. This is Declarations. I'm Munagasim. And I'm Jingmen Tan. We hope you'll keep listening to the episodes that we'll continue to produce and the ones that we've made already. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen. Thank you, and we'll see you again.